Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl, where we invite you to really discover and kind of look at the inner wise girl or guy, that little one inside, who really does have a lot of wisdom, what we can sort of tap into. And I have a very special guest for us today, and his name is Dr. Bruce Perry. He's an American psychiatrist, currently the Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas. And he's an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. He is also the author of a very popular book along with uh, Maya Slavitz, <laughs> and you can help me with that, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, talking about his clinical work and experiences with child trauma survivors. And then um, this just actually got a refresh and an update last year, and Born for Love which really uh, is the discussion on empathy, talking more about um, why it's so needed. The subtitle is uh, why empathy is essential and also endangered. Welcome, Dr. Perry. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here, Francesca. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. Um, you've done so much work over the years and made so many incredible contributions to uh, the world of well-being. And I really would just like to kind of dig in and talk about how our early experiences influence, you know, sort of how we operate today, oftentimes out of just habit or whatever those experiences are. And then what can be done, how things can be done to shift that, what's sort of needed to move into greater well-being, not only for our own individual person, but for the collective sphere that we're in, whether it's our family or our community or the greater world. How's that sound? That sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> great. Thank you. Okay, so let's just start at the beginning. Um, why the interest in uh, child trauma? Well, I, my interest started because I, I was kind of um, accidentally put into a freshman seminar uh, when I was at, a freshman at Stanford that had a professor, his name was Seymour Levine. He was the person who really was the, the, the pioneer that started all the work about early handling stress and development. And so he had just finished a series of studies where he'd taken little rat pups and given them about five minutes of stress. And the stress was basically taking them away from their mother holding them in the human hand and then putting them back in the cage with the mother. And then as those pups grew up, their stress response was different and their brain was different. And when I heard, you know, I was like eight, 19 years old. I, I heard that you could have a five minute experience when you are young. And that led to a completely different way you responded to stress when you were an older animal. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And the for me, the other part of it that was interesting is that you could do the very same thing when the rat pups were a little bit older and you wouldn't get the same effect. So there was this demonstration of the importance of, number one, uh, the impact of stress during development and number two, the timing of stressors during development were very important. And from that point forward, I was studying some aspect of the development of the dopaminergic systems or serotonergic systems or noradrenergic systems in the brain and, you know, in animal models and then in humans. And then 
once I went into medicine, the sort of the clinical um, discipline that made for me the most sense was psychiatry and child psychiatry. And so I've just had this um, developmental perspective from the start of my training. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. And I think, you know, from sort of the origin of, of this um, podcast, it, it, it began really as an exploration into sort of who are we really and the inquiry that you had and I had as a journalist early on in your book, you said, how did this person come to be that way? And I think that that's what a lot of people come to mindfulness and spiritual practices and meditation about. They really want to know, like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? What am I here for? Who am I really? What is this all about? What does it mean? Can I break out of this? And with your work, you're really looking at how we get to be that way. So you talked about two things just now, timing and um, in some ways, just the neuroplasticity of the brain. Maybe talk a little bit about what, what's important for us to just understand about timing. You know, um, we just finished a really interesting um, study where we looked at the timing of developmental adversity you know, bad things, and also balanced against the timing of good things. So we have a way to measure connectedness, you know, how well you're connected to family, to community, to culture. And if that's high, that's a good thing. And and then we looked at a whole bunch of bad things, uh, abuse, neglect, exposure to domestic violence, and so forth. And so the balance between the good things and the bad things kind of gives you this developmental risk score. And so what we found was that if you have high developmental risk in the first two months of life, and then you are taken out of that environment, and for whatever reason, your world changes, and it might be you went into the child welfare system, it might be lots of other things, but, and then for the next 11 years, 12 years, you had pretty good, you know, pretty good connectedness and pretty low adversity, your outcomes are worse, worse than if you had the first two months of life that were good and then the wheels came off your family and you ended up in a high adversity, low connection environment for 12 years, which is a very powerful observation. And it, you know, if you understand how the brain develops and how it really early, early in life, it's making these incredibly rapid changes and predominantly in the first two months of life in context of the maternal infant interaction, you're creating sort of the regulatory set point for your stress response systems. And if you have attentive, attuned, responsive caregiving, your stress response systems become kind of resilient and they can handle all kinds of stuff. But if during that really critical time in the development of those systems, you have chaos and unpredictability and your stress response systems are activated all over the place, then you are, even later on, if you're in an environment that isn't that challenging, your stress response systems are discombobulated. And that will influence every single part of your brain, the thinking part of your brain, the feeling part of your brain, and it will influence your body, you know, your physical health. And so you end up with this incredible vulnerability and a cascade of problems that have their origins in that first two months of life. And, um, what, you know, this is a, you know, it's a sort of a good news, bad news narrative, right? The good news is that 
if we take, uh, you know, create policy programs and interventions that really support young mothers and their children when they're newborns, that's a tremendously wise investment. Um, and unfortunately, that's really not what we're doing. I mean, we, we really don't spend that much money on helping kids that are struggling until they kind of enter the school years when they sort of present with their problems. And then we get them services. And then we spend a lot of money on assessments. And by then, you know, they've already had three or four or five years of dysregulation that makes it harder to change. And, and you mentioned neuroplasticity, which is one of these great attributes of, of the brain is that it's changeable. And all these neural networks are changeable. <clears throat> but the key issue, and here's the big problem with, with our current mental health system, is that it views you and me as exactly the same. It takes everybody and it assumes they're all the same. And so we have a one-size-fits-all model for how we deal with everything. And, you know, think about it for a minute. Just think for one minute. The brain's got 86 billion neurons. 86 billion. And we have, you know, each one of those neurons has thousands of synaptic connections. And the brain mediates easily two to 300 functions. And if you go into a typical child mental health clinic, it, you can take all the kids in that clinic and there will be maybe six or seven diagnoses that are used in a little, six little boxes to put all their problems in. Now, if you go into it, if you look at the heart, the heart has, you know, 16 billion neurons, way less, or 16 billion cells, way far fewer cells only has one major function to pump blood. But if you go to a pediatric cardiology clinic, you'll have hundreds of unique diseases. And so you know that what we're doing in mental health is that we're basically looking at these symptoms and we're just throwing kids in these little boxes and we're not looking at what's underneath the symptom. And because we're not doing that, we will never solve those problems. And the, the sad reality is, the malleability of the brain means that we can change those networks and help people heal, but we can't help them heal if we don't provide the right kinds of experiences. And so the, the, the traditional adult perspective about how the brain works has this fantasy that we're rational that the brain works from the, that our cortex is what's really running everything in our lives. That, that children who misbehave choose to misbehave. That when they bump into somebody in the lunch line and they impulsively poke them, that that was a choice as opposed to an elicited behavior. And so the concept of bottom-up functioning of the brain, which is just a fundamental principle of neuroscience, is not appreciated by mental health, by educators, and by most parents. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we'll have to do as we sort of help move the field forward is that we just have to teach people about neuroanatomy. I mean, just teach a little bit more about how the brain works and how the brain processes information. And once people understand that, then it will become obvious that, listen, if we really want to take advantage of the neuroplasticity of the brain, 
and we want to change these dysregulated stress response systems, we've really got to go from the bottom up. We, we've got to use somatosensory routes to get to the neural networks that are involved in stress as opposed to these very indirect, uh, convoluted, top-down routes that are incredibly challenging. Anyway. Yeah. I, I, go ahead, finish. I feel like I'm dominating. This isn't much of a conversation. No, 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 no that's great. No, 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 we're coming back and forth. No, of course, this is, you know, there's a reason why um, I like to talk and I talk a lot, and, but this is really what you're here to share you know, and, okay. and your wisdom. So we appreciate that. And I know I certainly do. And I'm sure our listeners and our viewers do because it is a critical um, pedagogical and also just an, it's an imperative point to understand that um, the way that we function isn't the way that we've been taught that we function. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and that it's okay. Um, and that there's a reason evolutionarily that we're wired this way. And the more we understand that and attune to that, um, you know, the better off we'll be. I always say to some of my, um, some of my mindfulness clients, I said, you know, you don't go to the mechanic for a haircut, you know, you you don't want to be using the wrong tool for the, for the quote unquote right job, you know, and and your framework and your understanding that you're explaining is, um, you know, in terms of neuroanatomy with this bottom up approach that, um, in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, Dr. Beskel Vanderkoek talks about uh, the importance of, of bottom-up approaches, um, that this is the way in which we can start to attune and regulate and move toward well-being. And what the word you used was with different experiences. So I don't know if you want to start to get into what some of those experiences might look like. Or right. Like, or well, let's go back. Let me back up a little bit and talk about this so neuroplasticity is the ability of neural networks to, you know, sort of the label we use for <clears throat> this malleability of neural networks and, and neurons. And there's one really important, there, there are several principles of neuroplasticity, but one of them is what we call specificity. And what that means is you cannot change a neural network unless you activate that neural network. So, for example, if I want to teach you how to play the piano, as much as I put you in front of a video to watch people playing the piano, as much as I would have you read, as much as I would have you listen to music, you would not learn how to play the piano because you're not putting your hands on the piano and activating the neural networks that are involved in the motor activity associated with playing the piano. So... If you want somebody to learn to ride a bicycle, you gotta put them on a bicycle. If you want somebody to learn how to play the piano, you have to put them at the piano. If you want somebody to change their stress response system, you have to activate the stress response system. And the most direct and effective way to get to those neural networks that are the backbone of the stress response system is to use somato, which is basically body, and sensory input. And so let me try to draw a visual image for everybody. Your brain is envisioned it as an upside down triangle. The top is the cortex, the rational part of your brain where you think and 
your values are up here. And when you teach somebody math, it goes up here. And that's, that's the most human part of your brain. It's most uniquely human. It mediates the most human functions. But in order to get to that top part of the brain, you have to go through the middle part of the brain that is sort of an emotional part of your brain. And even before you get there, you have to go through this lowest part of your brain, which is regulatory. And so this process of, of getting to the cortex involves going through other more primitive areas. And the architecture of the brain is such that these low in the brain, you have these incredibly important regulatory networks. And you, most people have heard of them, the noradrenergic systems, dopaminergic systems, cholinergic, and, and the collectively these systems get to every single part of your brain and every single part of your body, every part of your body, either directly or indirectly through the neuroimmune or neuroendocrine systems or the autonomic nervous system or direct innervation. So literally grand central station for regulation is down in the lowest part of your brain. Mm -hmm. Now it makes complete sense then complete sense that the first stop for every single sensory input from the world that's telling you what's going on in the world, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, all of that comes into your brain and the first place it goes is low in the brain. And that's because that's, that's perfect design. And, and the first place that all the sensory feedback from your body about how much oxygen you have and what your heart rate is and all that, it comes up to the same place, the lower parts of the brain. So this part of your brain the lowest, and I hate to say this, the dumbest part of your brain, the part of your brain that can't tell time, is actually the, the, the secret to understanding stress. And so what that means is <clears throat> the sensory input, right, that's coming from the outside part of the world, and the somatic input that's coming from your body, <clears throat> from how you move and where you are in space and your heart rate and how you're breathing, all that stuff, goes right to this really important place directly. And so when we say somatosensory, it basically is that collection of, of, of inputs that get to that sort of regulatory set of nuclei. And because of the principle of specificity, what that means is the best way to get to the stress response networks that have been altered by trauma, or that are activated because you're anxious or nervous right now in the moment is to directly activate them through somato sensory routes, breathing, walking, running, chanting, you know, visual rhythmic stuff. And, and, and so, and now let me just talk for a second about the rhythm part of this. So the second most important part about neuroplasticity is that, you can't change a neural network just by activating it once. You've got, to, you've got to provide a pattern of activity. It has to be repetition, 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 repetition. And with that sufficient repetitive signal, then there will be the signals to the DNA to change what genes go on and off and to make new proteins and to change the synaptic sculpting and do all this stuff. But there has to be a sufficient repetitive signal. Now, all right, 
Hold that in your head for no, new paragraph. Okay. <laughs> new paragraph. We can do that. So one of the great things about the way the brain works is as it's organizing and trying to make sense of the world, when two patterns of neural activity co-occur, happen at the same time, they get woven together. They get connected and literally physically connected through synap creating synaptic connections. And we, one term we use to describe that is what we call association. You make an association between a sight and a sound. And so language is basically created by having a lot of these associations, right? You make an association between the sound cow and, and that animal that you see. And the reason you make that association is that every time you see that, somebody in your world, your parents, your grannies, your friends say, make the sound cow. And you make the association with that sound and that visual image. And your brain does that all, is doing that all the time. Now, when you're in utero, this is going to help people, I hope, understand why rhythm is so important. When you're in utero, your little fetal body is sending signals back to your brain that say, I'm not hungry, I'm not thirsty, I'm not cold. And those are signals that, what, that collectively we refer to as you're regulated. These are regulated, the signal you're getting is I'm regulated. I'm safe, I'm regulated. But the signals that are coming in from the sensory part, right, because your little senses exist they're coming in and they're sending both through tactile through vibratory and through auditory routes you're getting non-stop the entire time your brain is organizing the entire time you're in utero you're getting the syncopated rhythms that are coming from mom's heart rate the opening and the closing of the valves and and so what happens is your brain starts to connect pattern, repetitive, somatosensory rhythms with being regulated. And so later on, after you're born, you get rocked at 60 to 80 beats per minute. It calms you down. When you get nervous as you get older, you kind of rock yourself. If you, you listen to music, you tap your finger, you walk, you run. Every single one of those things that you do is either a, a direct it's the, the core rhythm of the intrauterine environment or it's a submultiple of that rhythm. And so this pattern, repetitive, somato, sensory, rhythmic input gets to the stress response systems directly and tells them you're safe, you're regulated. And so EMDR, Aboriginal healing rituals, um, you know, bilateral tapping, um, meditative deep breathing, running, dancing, uh, you know, needlework, all kinds of things that people do to regulate themselves and all kinds of things that have been incorporated into trauma healing practices are tapping into that fundamental core neurobiological capability that we all get when we're growing up in utero.
Right. And, 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 and thank you for that explanation, because I think that it helps people understand why do I feel better when I do these things that I do? Like a friend of mine, Needlepoints, I'm looking at it right now. She made me this amazing like mandala um, pretty much um, that she spent, I think, three years doing. And yep. that's her way. And she gives them gifts at the end of her period, a way to her dear ones. And it's a beautiful gift. Um, but it's another way of, of, of incorporating that. And you mentioned chanting. And I know a lot of friends who, who do that and, and these other breathing practices. So why is it then that we think I mean, I have so many questions, but I guess, why is it that we think that we should be able to self-regulate without that or without doing something? Because we haven't been taught. I mean, that's the irony. And, and the truth is, <clears throat> there are three ways that you can self-regulate. Three ways. That's it. The first way is this top-down, which is the, what our world loves. Our society loves top-down cortical regulation. You use these cortical mechanisms that as you get older, your cortex gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And a big part of the cortex is this feedback loop to the lower parts of the brain to kind of contain that reactivity and impulsivity. And it's, it's wonderful. It's great to have self-control. We end up labeling this kind of broadly executive functioning. So we can, we can be in a situation where we feel angry and frustrated, but we'll use our cortex to say, don't say anything stupid. You need this job, et cetera, et cetera. We do this stuff all the time. But that's because we, most of us who are adults who are listening have a cortex that's mature and organized. The, the, the cortex doesn't fully mature until you're about 30 years old. And one of the core components of activation of the stress response is that it immediately begins to shut down parts of the cortex. So the very tool that top-down people expect you to use to regulate yourself is shut down and made less efficient uh, by the very uh, act of becoming dysregulated. So it's, it, it's, it's this illogical approach to therapeutics. And, and I love that because, <clears throat> you know, it, this is something that I think really has huge implications and it's been discussed widely, but perhaps needs to be even discussed more widely. For the impact, for example, of um, folks who are subjected to systemic racism and oppression and um, various forms of, of poverty and, and, and different kinds of stressors at a young age, and when placed in a classroom, may have a different ability, quite literally, not simply based on circumstance, but in the ways in which you're describing that the brain functioning is actually happening from inside out, not because of an innate uh, you know, difference in IQ or capacity or anything like that, but just more based on the adaptive consequences of um, their stress response to the system that they were exposed to. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the things that, <clears throat> that we've been studying, really I've been studying this for 35 years, it's a process that we, it's something we call sensitization. And basically what that is, is it, it's, it's, again, it's related to neuroplasticity. And so the, the third thing that's important about neuroplasticity is that the pattern of activation plays a major role in how the neural network changes. So for these stress response systems, if the pattern of activation is unpredictable and chaotic, doesn't have to be extreme. 
if it's unpredictable and chaotic, you'll end up getting a system that becomes more and more and more sensitive, tuned up, overly reactive, and you get the very same neurobiological change that you would get if you were in some sort of big capital T trauma, like a school shooting or something else. And so I would argue that the majority of children in our culture who have trauma-related changes in their brain, making it harder for them to uh, sort of regulate and then open up their cortex to be ready to learn, don't have it because of a school shooting or some other big thing. They have it because they have been marginalized. They are in an environment where there's housing, insecurity, food insecurity, all the stuff that goes with poverty creates for their parents and for them this ongoing level of unpredictability and distress in the climate at home that sensitizes their stress response system, leads to them shutting down their cortex partially, and they'll sit in a classroom. And the irony again, here's the, here's the educational system that doesn't know anything about the brain. It says, don't wiggle your leg. Don't tap your finger. Don't, don't rock. Don't stand up. You sit, don't move, don't touch, don't do any of these other regulating things. Only use top-down regulation. And, and nobody can do it. Not even the kids that are well-regulated. So here's what happens. The other thing, of, uh, the other way that we can regulate is using dissociation. So when you're in an inescapable, unavoidable situation and you feel dysregulated, you tune out. And, and so sitting, everybody's had this experience of being in a lecture where you have, you, you, it's like gets boring and then you, if you can't get away, right, you're trapped. So you go to your inner world. That's, that's the dissociative mechanism. And it's not bad. I mean, dissociation should not be pathologized. It's actually a very, very powerful, very, very positive mental state that's actually necessary for creativity. But people, kids who are neurotypically regulated in a typical 45-minute classroom lecture who are not allowed to move, not allowed to chew gum, not allowed to sway, not allowed to listen to their music, they will actually probably be partially dissociated for at least half of that time. And so there'll be inefficient uptake of content. And so the irony is if you let these kids move, if you let them walk around and they would learn faster and retain it better than if make them sit. And, um, you know, some place, some educational settings are learning this. A lot of them still don't get it, but. Right. right. And, and there are so many um, sort of, I, I, you know, there are so many things that, that we're doing now because we've done them that way for, for so long. Um, but the model isn't really working. And, and I know you care so deeply as, um, as I do, and as many I know do, about sort of the broader implications of all of this also. But before we sort of go there, um, I also want to just mention that you really highlight the uh, neuroanatomy neuro um, behind what you're talking about in terms of um, not being able to sort of take in certain things when the body is acting in a certain way or wired for a certain pattern and, and not able to receive certain things. In this book, when you talk about, uh, I believe the um, fictitious name is Laura here, who was, um, could not uh, absorb food, could not uh, absorb 
nutrition um, because her, her body, she was an anorectic child. And then once she started to receive love and touch and yeah. care in a way that her uh, caregiver was not able to provide, but eventually learned to provide more of later, um, that that was the, what helped her actually gain weight. So that this is a really, I guess it, that's just such an obvious example of what you're talking about. And that when the system isn't primed to take it in, she was getting all these calories technically in her body and it right. wasn't taking. Right. right. And just like we could teach these kids in these classrooms that are in these circumstances in the way that we think is correct, but it's not going to take. They're still yeah. going to yeah. be emaciated. But exactly. shift what their needs are because like you say, you're matching what you're giving the experiences to the neural networks that are the ones that are needing adjustment exactly you will find success yeah and and the being respectful and aware of the sequential development of the brain and the sequential processing of the brain what that means is we have to have we have to think intentionally about the sequence of uh the inappropriate sequence of engaging somebody right if i want to get to your cortex if I want you to hear me, what that means is I have to take stuff, formulate what I want you to hear in my cortex. I have to get it through the emotional part of my brain, right? Because, you know, I'm, I have to, you know, it can't go directly out. It has to go through the lower parts of my brain and come out into space. And it has to go in the lower part of your brain and effectively negotiate your associations and your emotional filters and then get to the cortex. And what happens is, even when two people are, are present with each other and intentionally you know, have good intentions to communicate, there still are these distortions, right? You'll still kind of get a misunderstanding. So someone may say something that they think is neutral, like, oh, you look nice today, which they think is a, nice, is a compliment, right? That I'm trying to say something nice. And if that, the other person has a history of being hit on at work, their brain goes, is he hitting on me? Is he, why is he saying that? And, and, and the intention can get distorted by that other person's personal history. And we all, can, we all have these distorting filters. And so the process of both teaching a child, communicating with your partner, um, you know, doing therapeutic work always involves the brain of the one person and the brain of the other person. And we all have our own little filters. And this is in mental health, we call this transference and countertransference, right? And so it, it, when you sit down and actually think about how hard it is to really accurately communicate with somebody, I'm surprised that there aren't more ruptures, right? There aren't, there's not more disconnection. But I, the beauty of human beings and is that communication and connection are all about repairing rupture. You know, the ruptures are going to happen. But the, the real healing, and you get really close with somebody when you get the repair. When you go, well, did I? I, I, I think I misunderstood you. Help me understand. And then that helps people actually make a healthier connection. And that... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, because I want to play devil's advocate. Okay, so that'll happen maybe, and somebody will say, well, I said I'm sorry. But then the person doesn't feel felt or seen on the other end. Yeah. And therefore, it's not truly repaired. Exactly. 
transformative for that relationship to move it forward and grow. Right, right. And so, <clears throat> so what I would say is this, is that when the person hears from you that that hurt me, that gets up to their cortex and they give you a cortical response that basically bypass, it, it comes through their emotional part of their brain, but they don't really believe. They think that they can get off the hook from the, the discomfort of making you feel uncomfortable or bad by apologizing. But they need to be held to the fire. You know, they put their feet to the fire and say, listen, I know you're saying you're sorry, but it's, I still feel, for some reason, I still feel crappy about this. Well, I love where you're going with this because it goes right into the work on empathy that you wrote your second book about and um, talking about this idea of there's been a lot of conversations around empathy and compassion, empathy, sort of the ability to feel what the other person is feeling, which is what you're saying, which is like remorse, if you will, like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I'm with you on this and, you know, yes, I said it or I did it and I'm culpable and that doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. It was just a, a misbehavior, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, how can I make it up to you? Or, you know, can you at least believe me that I'm accountable for my, for my thing and I'll try to move forward in a different way knowing that this is a sensitive spot or something like that. Um, but you know, for those of you uh, who are listening, and you, you probably know about this too, that that's sort of the, the work on growth mindset. And there are people who are, are always curious about trying to better understand the world. And they also tend to be folks that are also trying to better understand the person in front of them. And so a lot of times, believe me, I, I, I make mistakes all the time in human interactions with my kids, you know, with my friends, with my colleegues. And I, and I believe me, there have been times that I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, let's move on, I got work to do. Um, <laughs> And, and so I'm not, you know, sometimes I'm not sensitive at all, but when I recognize that I have sort of not done the right thing, that there's been this rupture, I always want to understand. I mean, I asked, help me understand. I mean, I know that upset you, but tell me, help me know why. I mean, what, what part of it was it that I didn't recognize how good you did that or that the acknowledgement seemed empty, hollow or what, tell me. And I think, again, when you have the intention of really trying to understand, I think that that makes a big difference. I think people feel that. But a lot of times as you, I think a lot of people have learned the script of getting off the hook. And also, I think a lot of people aren't told that the framework of being vulnerable, I know Brene Brown's done a lot of work on this topic and shame and all of that, but that you, you sort of alluded to it earlier, <clears throat> for those of you who are watching on video, um, you sort of pointed to your heart when you were explaining this um, about this empathy, this connection, this am I really getting you, am I grokking what you're saying about you know feeling hurt, that, that this piece is sort of a critical piece toward um, toward healing not only ourselves and our relationships, but to healing you know, the world um, at large. But a lot of people are so uncomfortable with holding their own space in that regard. And that's a lot of what the mindfulness work that I teach and the meditation and that nobly approved path and you know, Buddhist whole, um, the Buddha's you know, sort of teachings around ignorance and you know, the, the suffering is, is the resistance. And then you know, can you just be with the acknowledgement that 
oops, ouch, I did this not so great. Can I be accountable? And then move on to what the whole other template and framework is, which is virtuous, living a virtuous life. What does that mean? Not in some pious way, but what would it mean to be honorable? What would it mean to be um, one where you would uh, do unto others as one would do unto you in the sense of, and this is another <laughs> metaphor from a different religion, but again, you know, that idea of, you know, treating others as you would like to be treated in a heart way, as opposed to having that exoskeleton that we've been taught in our culture made out of titanium, where I'm impenetrable, I can do anything. It's sort of an avoidant attachment um, sort of character structure of our society or Western society, it seems in many ways. And, you know, just to connect the dots, I think empathy, that connection, that attachment oriented, you know, response that we can attune to with that rhythmic um, and attunement and, and self-regulation that can lead to co-regulation and outer world regulation once we mature and grow, that that piece, I think is what you really are talking about is endangered. And how do we shift from becoming aware of these things, <clears throat> recognizing that it's not that there's anything wrong with you, your brain is functioning fine, this is how we're wired. Mindful awareness and loving compassion can bring a certain desire to do this with a gentle hand, and then we can move forward. But why do people not want to do that? Why do they want to hold on to their steeliness? Well, I, I, th I think about this stuff a lot. Um, and again, I, I tend to sort of, as I'm sol thinking about problems, I'm using my own sort of templates. And one of the things that I think is involved in all this stuff is the concept of dosing. So all learning involves some exposure to novelty and some discomfort with not mastering whatever it is that you're doing. Even if it's like, it, there's discomfort with recognition that you didn't master this interaction with another person, or that you, I'm not a racist, and, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, and, and you, you don't want to actually visit the uncomfortable reality that you really have some things that could be considered racist in the way you tell jokes. Or, the way you laugh at jokes or the way you hang around with people that only look like you or, you know, that's uncomfortable for somebody who views themselves intellectually as not being racist. And so the, here's what, here's the way I view all of this stuff. If you leave your comfort zone, right, you get outside that shell, and you have a small controllable dose of discomfort and then go back into your shell and then you come back out of your shell and have a tiny little dose of discomfort and go back in, you actually start to change your, you grow, you change. And the reality is if you keep yourself open to these little doses of learning, but, but what ideally what has to, what the circumstance of that learning experience is if it's like development. If somebody is there who will scaffold you, somebody will help you um, learn why you're a racist. <laughs> like, let's say it. <laughs> I hate, you know, and, and they will, in some ways, 
still feel, you'll still feel safe with them and they'll help you grow. Is racist behavior. Why right. these beliefs are racist beliefs. Yeah. Why this uh, impact is, is um, severely hurtful. Right. And how, and how, you know, again, the, the whole thing about, you know, you may not realize it, but when you do that, you know, you, you know, I'm black, right? And when you say that stuff, just think for a minute how that might make me feel. And so when you have somebody who is caring enough to help you grow, and it, it could be about anything. It could be about the fact that you're really a bad communicator in a relationship. It could be that you're really a bad teacher. You're really not supervising very well. You may be really smart scientists, but you're a shitty teacher. And But if people are willing to help you and you can leave your comfort zone in a climate of safety and and feel uncomfortable and then go back to your safety and then come back out you grow and that and that's the thing now if you leave your comfort zone and the dose of discomfort is too high you get number one you are reluctant to leave your comfort zone around that topic anymore and so you start to literally, once your worldview is made, it, it, you keep it that way. You keep that armor, it, that's the way I view the world, that's the way it is. And then you use the rational part of your brain to justify all these other things. You come up with excuses and rationalizations and you find people that think the same way you, and then you go and you, you sort of reinforce each other instead of continuing to grow and grow and grow. And it's about dosing. And this is why I think that the shrill, angry dialogue in our culture is actually inhibiting the ability of people to grow up and expand the way they think about things in a more complex way. Because the more you get attacked when you sort of leave your comfort zone, the more likely you are to retreat to your primitive way of thinking, hang around with people that think like you, and start having an us and them mentality. That just makes everything worse. And, and I think that, you know, this happens in mental health. I mean, the people that, you know, when we, when we who are sort of trying to help the world better understand how to heal around trauma, when we mention that we think in the beginning with really dysregulated kids who have undeveloped cortexes and have a shutdown cortex that TFCBT might not be the best thing to do to start with, People who are behaviorists, people who like TFCBT, they literally push away, they go hang out with each other, they reinforce each other about how we have evidence and you don't, and it creates this incredibly in a sort of unhealthy schism, which is part of what goes on in any field when innovation is brought forward. And you know, so part of what I think we all need to do, whatever discipline we're in, whatever worldview we have, is to always try to keep an open mind and be better listeners. You know, learn how to be present in the discomfort of somebody challenging your views or your beliefs. And to the degree that you can model appropriate dosing for them, you may be able to sort of restore some kind of useful dialogue. Um, right. Yeah, because I mean, trauma is sort of that thing of too much, too fast, too soon, overwhelmed, exactly. not able to do something different about it. And, yeah. um, 
you know, this business of keeping an open mind, it, it, it's, you know, staying curious. It, it's sort of one of the core teachings of mindfulness or this idea of, um, I, I know one of my, my mindfulness teachers will say, um, you know, that his teacher um, said, you know, the answer to everything was don't know, don't know, right? In a very Zen sort of way. And yeah. yet that opens the door to possibility. And Dan Siegel talks about this also, you know, about the plane of possibility, potentiality, I think he calls it, where, where things are grokking at a different level, which is, I think, this subcortical synaptic level where true transformation and change can happen. But this dosing piece is not to overdo it. And, and again, bringing in the other models of titration and pendulation that I know about from somatic experiencing, it's sort of that same. Same, same concept. You're same concept toe in the water and then you're yeah. not just diving right into the deep end of the pool yeah. you're not exactly. taking a cannonball you're just yeah. sort of you know wading in sort of slowly and seeing whether or not the temperature is okay but the key piece that you said which i think is so important is about having someone to scaffold you or you know is the term you used having someone to hold you having someone to be with you, having someone to be willing to keep showing up. And that yeah. is what they would call secure attachment figures, right? Whether you're an adult and it's your partner or whether it was your early caregiver, like your mom or dad or grandparent or someone else. But it seems like those are getting more scarce. So what do we do there? Because the same sort of attachment system, I think you said, is the one that's kind of at the root of the tribalist system. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we seem to be moving a little bit more, as you mentioned, toward the tribalism at a certain level, while we still have a lot of people doing amazing things that are very good and kind yeah. and passionate. But more of that is always welcome. Yeah, you know, the, the, all of our research and a lot of the research of other people has highlighted the power of connectedness, you know, that that is the, the major predictor of positive... Uh, development following trauma and recovery from trauma and uh, and adversity is how you connected you are um, and unfortunately at the same time that we're seeing this what we're recognizing in the broader culture is that we're becoming increasingly disconnected from each other because of the choices our society has made about housing about urban planning, about how we put 35 kids in one classroom with one teacher, um, and screens. And so the real neurobiological kind of glue that helps people be connected, that promotes the development of empathy and the acquisition of new social emotional content and new cognitive content, we're just not we are not cultivating that kind of connection. Well, uh, I almost feel like, Dr. Perry, it's almost too good to be true that doing laundry with somebody would be a way to actually help heal them or, you know, vacuuming together or, you know. Well, I got to tell you, that's, when I, we do a lot of work with home visitors, mm -hmm. you know, home visiting programs, and, and they have their little scripts and what they're supposed to teach. And, and I'm like, throw the script out the window. You need to go into the house and if, look at what's going on in the apartment. Do they need to? What, let's wash the dishes, or let's, you know, let's. I'm gonna let's do something together in parallel, and that is relationship building. It's bonding, and once that happens, then you can kind of dyadically talk about stuff. But you know, it's. I think that we undervalue the 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 power of presence. 
we use this term called the power of proximity. If you are with people, you will change people. If you are not with people, you can't change them. And they can't change you. Meaning if your deepest self is with people. You don't just mean be a body in the same room, you know, doing... No, but I, what I mean, well, sometimes being a body in the same room is the start to being able to be truly connected. And, and, and for some people, again, this is about dosing, right? Some people, intimacy is so overwhelming and they don't know you, you know, if you are a big white man like me and you're trying to connect with a little black boy, you know, you don't go right into this stuff right away. You, you start way like this. I'm in the same space as you. You're throwing a basketball. I'm sort of like looking at my computer and doing a little work. And then you get a little bit closer. And then I sort of turn off the computer and I turn my chair a little bit. Then he goes back over here. You know, it's you, you have to remember dosing. It's you have to give the child and or the person you're working with control of the process of closing the intimacy barrier. And then when they're ready to invite you across the intimacy barrier, let them choose when and how they bring that stuff up. But me traditional mental health is like, oh, you're here because you were raped by your father. Why don't you tell me about that? Like, whoa. Well, okay. So let's just use that for example. Um, if someone is a survivor of sexual trauma and they're having some sort of mm, disgusting, you know, sort of feeling or aversive kind of response with their partner, um, and, and, and maybe we don't know precisely what happened, but say there are certain, you know, right. some kind of, there's a response that's there that's physiological for some reason, right? right. It could be medical trauma. We don't say we don't know, um, but that is related to that. Then how would you go about having that person when you say in, you know, in their real life partnership, because there's a lot of people out there who are right. fucked up and, you know, they, they don't, they don't necessarily have um, the kind of a intimate uh, romantic life that they might, that they might want perhaps to have or maybe could have and certainly deserve to have what is the way in which the person who's like i want sex they won't give it to me and the other person's like uh yeah i know and yeah. kind of want it but i kind of don't because you keep asking for it i really don't right so what would you how would you do that well at the risk of sort of <laughs> as you know <laughs> pretty complex area <laughs> Not sure that in a podcast I can give you a great formula, but here's, here's what I'd start. I'd just like, I would want to know, um, is there anything that you guys do together that you both are all okay with? Like, are you okay with just holding hands, watching a movie? Is that, is, how is that for you? Just where do you, where do you start? Where, and, and if any kind of physical contact is an issue, then you have to go think about what's a healthy progression of building in positive associations about touch that you can help them put together. And, um, and we do this with almost all the therapeutic work we do. We wanna know where somebody is to start with. So we have sort of an assessment to process to kind of go, well, where are you with this capability or issue? And then we start by scaffolding, you know, creating a therapeutic approach where there's a safe opportunity for them to choose to leave their comfort zone, to get out into this novelty area uh, to the degree that they can tolerate, and then go back.
And, you know, in this case, it might be that they're, uh, you know, they are do just fine with holding hands, doesn't bother me. Well, then maybe we should, let's talk about, uh, I'm going to teach you how to do a hand massage. And you, you, you know, how are you with the practice of putting lotion on his hands and him putting lotion on your hands? And you start with stuff that's non-sexualized and slowly move towards other forms of, you know, physical contact that you can make, you can, you can take things and you can build new associations with them. And that's kind of where you want to get to. Yeah. And I love that. And the reason why is because I'm bringing this back to the way that you open the conversation um, today. It's about the learnings that we have neurobiologically, neurophysiologically early on that were in this case, perhaps traumatized for, for whatever reason, you know, they learned a certain patterning that now is preventing something that we'd like to have happen, happen that isn't happening. So it was adaptive. And now that it's no longer you needed, um, how to, how to change that. But the changing of that to your point is repetition, dosing, scaffolding, building, not more of too much, too fast, too soon. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's the key, you know, the irony about healing is that if you want to go far, you want to heal a lot, go slow. And, you know, it, it, it seems counterintuitive because our, you know, again, our whole existing mental health model is 20 sessions and you're done. Or, you know, the, the concept that a therapeutic dose is 45 minutes once a week, which is completely neurobiologically nonsense neural networks change by having thousands of brief five second long doses of engagement so when you think about when you have a conversation with somebody if you actually look in their eyes for five seconds that's a long time and so the truth is you can have an intense powerful connection with somebody by looking at them for like two seconds, two seconds of eye contact can be just this wonderful bonding connection. And it, what that should help you understand is that that is enough to begin sending a signal to the neural networks to change. And then it, of course, if you only have one, two second gaze at somebody on the bus, you know, that's not going to go very far. You may kind of smile about it all day long, but you know, if you see her again the next day on the bus and you have another one and then another one and another one, the repetition of these little little doses of therapeutic stuff make change. And so the real agents of change in the life of a child or an adult it, aren't the therapists, it's the therapeutic web. It's that collection of people in your life who are able to give you these tiny little doses of at, you know, kindness, affirmation, information, whatever it is that they're giving to you, but it's in these little doses. And again, that's something that we, you know, the, the current mental health model just can't wrap its head around. Um, it's Go got this. Yeah. Fantasy. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's just it's got this fantasy that, you know, that the therapeutic hour is when everything happens and it's just not. Well, I mean, as we as we begin to to wind down and close here in the last five minutes or so, the what is your real hope and wish for 
um, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, psychotherapists, social workers um, that work at the child, adolescent, adult level. What, I mean, I know it's not a lot of time and you can say as much or as little as you like, but what isn't being done or known or explored um, that really could be uh, in terms of just shifting it um, for the well-being of the client, for the well-being of the people who, who are needing the help? So the, the first thing I should say is that the, my earlier comments were not to suggest that therapy or therapists aren't going to be incredibly powerful and helpful. It's just that the therapist should think differently about their, their role. Right. They should think about themselves as the conductor of an orchestra. Not the, not the person who plays every single instrument and every single note of the symphony. That would be absurd. In fact, you may not even play any of the notes. But if you know when the teacher and when the coach and when the grandpa and when mom and when all those people and you, you sort of are aware of the, where the child is developmentally, what are the things the child needs, you support the people who are doing that by giving them information, help them understand that, you know, I know he's 10, but the truth is developmentally in this area where you interact with him, he really only is about a six-year-old. So what you need to do is have expectations that you have for a normal six-year-old. And if you dose him right, you know, dose him developmentally appropriately, and you scaffold him, he will get to be a 10-year-old in that capability within a year and a half. But if you keep having unrealistic expectations of him, a year and a half from now, he'll still be six, and he'll be chronologically 11. And so he'll, the gap will get bigger. So... This is where your role as the mental health professional is to understand the biology of the brain, to understand neuroplasticity, to understand how to craft a set of uh, developmentally appropriate uh, interventions that are gonna help this child uh, catch up. And which means that you really, again, this is a hard thing. The medical economic model doesn't like this because it's hard to bill for phone calls to the school and phone calls to the t parents and everything else, but it, it can be done. And um, that's kind of where I think the field is gonna have to go. Yeah, I, I love that. And I also just wanna sort of underscore the ability to w which one can self-regulate, meaning yeah. that you can be your own guide also so that you're a healing presence from the inside out. That yes, being able to sort of pull together this web of other people who have the capacity to be there for the child or the adolescent or even the adult is critical and amazing because then you have that much of a broader scaffolding, so to speak, to, yeah. to support um, this. It does in fact take a village, but that the more that we ourselves, uh, when we're working with anyone, can just be reflective on how are my, how's my own nervous system doing? Right, Where exactly. Right now? Yeah. And again, that mindfulness piece in terms of repetition, I think is important there. And then slow, you said slow is, you know, in, in somatic experiencing, they say slow is fast. And I think that that's kind of what you're saying is that that's what will get you there eventually. And yeah. bhavana or cultivation from the mindfulness communities is sort of that idea of, you know, just keep on laying, the groundwork, yeah. just keep on doing that. And that that takes time. So attunement is an art and a skill with that rupture and repair. And that we live in a culture that doesn't 
everything wants to be expedited. Right. It's the impatience of our culture about so many things is really, I think, sort of bled into the therapeutic world too, that there's this fantasy that you can sort of do these things quickly and with a formula and, and put somebody in the right box and find the right medication. And the reality is what we know about human beings is that every single human being on the planet is unique. And every single human being on the planet is going to have to have an individualized therapeutic approach. And, and there may be commonalities and similarities and strategies that kind of work for a lot of people. But the truth is, until we start viewing people as individuals and really taking the time to get to know them and their journey to the present, we'll continue to make these inefficient and ineffective therapeutic uh, choices. Well, to your point, stay curious, right? Yeah. Stay curious. <laughs> Stay curious. Dr. Bruce Perry, the author of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, an amazing um, read, so many beautiful clinical stories and very difficult ones also. Um, and then Born for Love, which again, um, continues on sort of um, the idea of, of empathy and, and how, we can, how we can build it with this really deep foundation and understanding and the way that we work, the way that we're wired. It's not like there's, you know, it's how it's how we are and then it's it's what happens to us and then what do we do with that and what kind of help do we, we receive so dr bruce perry thank you so much for joining us today any closing thoughts or words from you i just uh would like to thank you francesca i appreciate the opportunity and the conversation and keep up your good work thank you so much take good care everyone see you later